there's trouble, G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe is this is episode 65 of G.I. Joe Book, the Nets Only Podcast, coming at you from South Africa about G.I. Joe. My name's Stephen, and as always, I'm joined by my buddies, Rob. Saturday morning cartoon Paul. That was loud. And Special Missions Cujo peering over the office fern. G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. And this is going to be a very animated episode. Animated why? Animated how? Because this is our Sunbow appreciation episode. Bet you didn't see that one coming, right? Well, G.I. Joburg has sometimes leveled some pretty harsh criticism at the first and most formative and perhaps most influential G.I. Joe animated outing. That being the Sunbow Marvel Productions animated series that ran from 1983 through to 1986. And then also went on to do the G.I. Joe movie in 87. But tonight, we are going to talk about the things that Sunbow got right. The things that enhanced not only our enjoyment of our toys, but our enjoyment of cartoons in general. There are a few, perhaps more than a few, perhaps there are a multitude of things that this series of cartoons did exceptionally well. And that's what we're going to get into tonight. We're also, uh, and I say we very loosely because I am no expert on Sunbow cartoons, in fact, I'd hazard to say that only 25% of us uh, is are an expert <laughs> on all things Sunbow. And that particular gentleman, Paul the Dolly Lama Deadly Pencils Lopesher, will be giving his five essential Sunbow story list. <laughs> story. Yeah. I like to leave you in suspense, just like a cliffhanger, like a to-be-continued episode of the G.I. Joe Sunbow cartoon. So if you want to, you can pause this podcast, take a look at these episodes, get your vintage Joes out, maybe a bowl of popcorn and a beverage of your choice, reacquaint yourself with these particular episodes, because in at least the opinion of one member of G.I. Joeberg, these are the creme de la creme of the original cartoon. Paul, the list, if you please. It is coming. I am Hector Ramirez for 20 questions. <laughs> I, I don't want to go as far as to say, like, these are the best episodes, but I'd say these are definite must-watches or must-see episodes, uh, and these are definitely episodes that have touched me. They are notable for different reasons. Some are notable for having a fairly cool story. Some are notable for having some kind of extreme goofiness. Some are just very um, special, very different. Something that you don't see G.I. Joe, any other G.I. Joe media tackle aside from the cartoon. So, I'm going to start with an obvious one. I think everybody knows this one fairly well. Worlds Without End, part one and two. Okay, uh, You'll notice a lot of these episodes or a lot of these things on my list are like two-parters. That's because I enjoy continuity. Any form of like continuity, even micro-continuity in a cartoon from the Sunbow Days is, is awesome, because most of the time that stuff was just like, okay, and today a giant shark attacks the city, and tomorrow everything is like fucking hunky-dory. So, like I was saying, Worlds Without End is a must-watch. Uh, if you never watch any G.I. Joe animated anything, 
and, and I'm talking, of course, with, with the exception to the miniseries, which you should do as a G.I. Joe fan. It's kind of your duty to do so as a G.I. Joe fan is to watch the, the original G.I. Joe miniseries Ziz um, in all their glory. Just give us the list, Paul. We can get into the merits later, man. But like, this is, this yeah, is so that they have at the outset the plan of action. Okay, so we're going to talk about, well, I'm going to get into some worlds without end again, listeners, if you weren't paying attention. <laughs> the much maligned, but truly awesome, Cold Slither, <laughs> Memories of Mara, a Captives of Cobra, and There's No Place Like Springfield. A devastating list, to be sure. There's more, but I'm not going to like highlight them in this list. I'll sort of throw them in as we go through the episode, because eh, these are five episodes I think every G.I. Joe fan should watch. So... <laughs> or eight episodes, as it were. <laughs> but before we get started on uh, addressing Sunbow and the cool things that it did do right, does anybody have any new toys they'd like to discuss? I don't have anything new, but you know, I'm sure they'll change at some point. Because now we did the whole episode where we discussed like the cool stuff we want, so <laughs> I wish- expect at least a few of those are coming in the post my way, so... <laughs> yeah, woo, MCC! Not a fucking chance. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Steven, what did you get? Have you got anything? I've been bitten by the superhero bug again, guys, and not for no good reason. In recent memory, we've had not one, not two, but three superhero team movies from three very different studios and directing teams. And all of them have been crap. And maybe that's all you're gonna say. Okay. Maybe this Sorry. is a more important side topic than talking about new toys. Uh, Mystique and Archangel from the Marvel Universe line. Just in case you were wondering, um, what did you guys think of Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, Captain America: Civil War, and X Men: Apocalypse? Are we putting a sentence on it or what? Am I putting a sentence on it? No, I'm putting a question mark after it. No, I mean, like, are we putting a sentence on a review or, like... Yeah, tell us, how, what did you think of them? How would you rank them? Deliver sentence here and now. I would give you a brief synopsis on all three of them. Please. Okay, I'll start with my favorite of the three, Batman vs. Superman. <laughs> I saw the trailer. Wow. Them fighting words, Paul. Sure. Sharpen your pencils, boy. This is combat. I saw the trailer. It had Jesse Eisenberg. He was making an ass of himself. I couldn't stand the dialogue and the plot looked terrible. The end. I didn't enjoy it. The X-Men movie, uh, X-Men Apocalypse, looked promising. At first, Apocalypse looked a bit dumb, but a few seconds into the trailer, I kind of got done with it. Uh, Quicksilver looking cool, as always, doing his Quicksilver thing. And I see that Mystique has been elevated to the leader of the X-Men. Also, not a top recommendation. Civil War. Rundown of Civil War. Hey, Tony Stark. You're a dick. Hey, Steve Rogers. You're a dick. We're big fucking teenagers. Let's disagree on something. Oh, guys, don't disagree. We're just going to fight it out because we're big fucking teenagers. Wow. Shut the fuck up, Paul. Okay, guys. Whatever. That's Civil War. Whoopee. Done. I saw a great internet meme where Captain America and Iron Man are about to throw down 
And Deadpool pops up in between them and says, Guys! What about Martha? (laughs) 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 Which I thought was um, delightfully Deadpool. Well, Paul, so you did not enjoy Civil War, I take it. Sounds like you didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was great. I thought the... I can't believe that the whole film's plot revolves around something so insignificant. And I just didn't buy why Team Captain America and Team Iron Man were against each other. I was just sitting there going, seriously, guys? Like, really? (laughs) You are very diplomatic people, and this is how you're sorting out your problem? Cool. (laughs) It's... Yeah. They tried it, diplomacy. It just, they tried to talk it out in a boardroom. They ultimately realized that their views could not be reconciled. I think they just wanted to have a stare down at a random airport somewhere. I, I can't wait to watch that movie down. again. I, know, right? I think I think out of the three films listed, Civil War is the only one whose character motivations ring true for me. It also helps that the characters have had either major supporting roles in other characters' movies or their own trio of films uh, as the the title character. So our sympathies uh, for these characters, because of their layers, because of their depth, are far stronger than our sympathies for the kind of pop-up targets and, and, and characters that we've seen being exposed and being backstoried within their own debut. Uh, I don't know, man, like, Wonder Woman came out of nowhere, and Apocalypse threw a whole slew of new characters into the mix that, I guess, if you're familiar with the comic book, maybe you've got a stronger attachment to, but unfortunately, being dealt with as they as they were, they were just background actors, for the most part. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Angel and Psylocke. Both very compelling characters on the comic book page, but dealt with like third tier baddies for that particular issue and then completely forgotten about the next time. But they've always done that with certain characters though in the Not those ones. Movie. Those were X Men. Those were actual X Men. Yeah, but in the movie Marvel Universe they've often done that. They've kind of downplayed certain characters to focus on their main cast, I think. Look, X-Men Apocalypse was not without merits. I think Magneto's backstory with his family and his attempt to try and blend in and be forgotten was perhaps a higher emotional high than anything I saw in Civil War or Batman v Superman. But that said, the the latter half of the movie ultimately fell flat. Cujo, I'm looking at you, bro. What's your opinion on all this? Yes, sir. Oh, what did I think of them? Yeah, well, what? how would you respond to Paul's statement that Civil War seemed puerile and he couldn't understand why all these superheroes were throwing down? Well, I'm going to tiptoe, gentlemen, because you know I could go on. Uh, I thought that there were some great acting performances in Civil War that kept it a little grounded. I like Black Panther. I like how they portrayed your guys' sensibility towards uh, violence. Um, I don't know if that's true. Maybe you can enlighten me. But, um... As far as Batman Superman, uh, that was trash. We all know, gentlemen. I mean, there was a couple nice action set pieces. Overwritten, poorly casted. Uh, um, let's see. What was the last one? I haven't seen it. But it kind of does insult my intelligence a little. Because, I mean, how does Olivia Munn make the genre from cosplayer 
to on the screen, and then how do we transfer that to storytelling? Did you see past her to the character? No. And tragically, I don't even think they nailed her look, which is a problem. Anyone can Google Psylocke cosplay and Psylocke's see some hot, man. very impressively oh. done and yet very simply done uh, cosplays of the character that look effective. This is the sign of bad filmmaking. You put too much costume on a great actor, uh, the guy that played uh, Doomsday or whatever. <laughs> Apocalypse. I'm sorry, Apocalypse, yes. Uh, but the Olivia Munn thing is interesting because she may be one of the biggest players in the game if you pull the iris back. Uh, we can probably chat about that another day. Sure. It sounds like we should do a... Uh... She makes me pull my iris back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a superhero movie a Star Wars Force Awakens. I'll give... Civil War credit where it's due. The Spider-Man section was actually quite cool for me. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Spidey. And I do think, like, a lot of the script and stuff was actually fairly decent. And a lot of the action set pieces were fairly decent. Especially when I divorced myself from it. Like, when I actually went, you know, if I could just just be a 12-year-old, just enjoy it for being what it is. And the action was cool in that regard. I just find that the comic book, there's too much in the comic to try and put into film to make Civil War make sense. Because even in the comic book, it makes sense, sort of. So I'd say, like, kudos to them for trying to make something that's interesting. I just I just felt for a big-name event in Marvel that its on-screen portrayal was just a little bit lackluster. And and compared to, like, the last, uh, to the Winter Soldier, um, I just felt it wasn't as strong a film as Winter Soldier was. But I don't want to, like, you know, like hate on it too much, but I just don't think it is that engaging a watch. I just, I, I felt a little bit embarrassed about being a comic fan when I walked out. I was kind of like, because eh. oh, I had friends that were like, I had non-comic fans like that were with me, and they were like, "Is that how it was in the comic?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> no." <laughs> and Look, Disney's best minds are on Marvel, so there's no mistakes being made, brother. I'll second that. I think that, its target audience enjoyed the shit out of it. I mean, it's clear that they I did because. Was, uh, the internet was on fire about how awesome it was and I'm like, I'm glad that those guys enjoyed the film, I don't think that they're idiots for enjoying it or anything, I just I just didn't feel it, I didn't feel any fire from it, then again, I am the guy that is looking forward to the new Turtles film huh. so <laughs> I guess our case is just worlds apart, Paul and my, my last sort of closing remark on the subject, I have never really connected with a storyline that involved Apocalypse I've never really had a handle on his motivation. He was beautifully portrayed in the film, but I just don't get him. I don't even understand his power, to be perfectly honest. It sort of has uh, matter transformation stamped all over it, but he just doesn't seem to have any real tangible limitations, and yet he can be defeated. How he doesn't just slaughter all his opposition outright uh, is always going to be a mystery to me. Maybe he's at war with his own inner demons, but we never get to see that because he's such a a superficial, non-three-dimensional entity. He's not even a character. He's like a blue god, and gods are boring, uh, (laughs) without sounding too controversial to me. Um, (laughs) Civil War, however, while I've never connected with an apocalypse storyline, either on the screen or on the page, I think that the Civil War event in Marvel Comics 
was the greatest comic book event I've ever witnessed for the simple reason that it took characters that we cared about, split them down the middle and had them fight each other. They weren't fighting this week's villain. They were fighting each other about a very political but very deeply emotional and rooted in their own identity issue. So the stakes mattered so much. Add to that what they did in the Civil War film, which just elevated the stakes even more, was they made it about family. For Cap, it's his only surviving friend from his era, his brother-in-arms. Fine man, it's his mother and dad. I mean, that's an example of how to handle that family angle in two different ways. On the one hand, you have Martha being the same name <laughs> for Kal-El and Bruce Wayne. I mean, that's a gigantic wank. Uh, and then handled in a far more superior way in Civil War. Oh, one other thing, uh, the entire brawl at the airport during Civil War, I could not unclench my, my legs. I was tense from the waist down. I just, I, I, I was just a coiled spring, like, I just wanted to like, I don't know, kick the seat in front of me. It was just so well executed and handled and, you know, you, you don't know whose side you want to be rooting for. You love everyone. Anyway, I've said too much. I, too, couldn't unclench my legs, as you know. So, uh, does anyone else have anything new that they got? Let's see. Oh, well, Paul and I have a project going. Uh, we're, we're small parts in it, but just for uh, anybody headed to Colorado in, in the next few weeks for the uh, JoeCon, um, we're going we're gonna to drop a, a free Synthwave album, kind of a collaborative project, uh, just with Joe fans all over the world. So keep your eyes open for that. I'll, I'll promote it accordingly. But it's just uh, synthwave music from the 80s. Maybe gets your mind right for the convention. So look out for 1982, a synthwave hero. Pardon me? Think John Carpenter, listeners, if, if you're not familiar with synthwave. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you'll, you'll dig it. And hopefully uh, hopefully we'll be able to – well, actually, I can't say that on the air. But, yeah, um, no, it, it's a good thing. Uh, keep your ears open. Very exciting stuff indeed. And G.I. Joburg will have a representative of Jokon. That's fucking cool. <laughs> nice. But on with the sunbow, baby! Shall we uh, have a musical interlude? <laughs> I think we should. Or we should have previously on G.I. Joburg. <laughs> no, we should have... <laughs> One, two, three, four... Cold Slither, you'll be joining us soon. A band of vipers playing our tune. With an iron fist and a reptile hiss, we shall rule. We're tired of words. We've heard it before. We're not gonna play the game no more. Why do some more art, Paul? <laughs> do your art thing, buddy. I'd like to hear what uh, praise Rob has for Sunbow, seeing as he's the member of this podcast that became acquainted with Sunbow cartoons more recently than the rest of us. Uh, he adds perhaps the jaded, cynical old man's view on these silly, silly cartoons. Silly three isn't old. <laughs> Even the way your age there, boy. <laughs> okay. So, what did, you, what did you love about Sunbow? 
What did I? Well, I didn't. I wouldn't say I loved anything about sunburn. Bob, <laughs> stick with the topic here. Okay, we are sunbow appreciators cool. tonight. What is cool about sunburn? I probably have about four points, and in general, that I, I kind of appreciate that they they've done in general. I think their general representations of the toy vehicles is quite good. I think across the board, whenever they use the the, the vehicles, they they you know they represent them quite well. And they look like the toys. Obviously, you know, they, they do a lot of different things that the toys can't do. Like in, um, Captors of Cobra, where they introduce a hydrofoil and they, um, saving, uh, the, the family, the brainwashed family members of, uh, the G.I. Joes. The hydrofoil has this giant net that comes out the side that kind of scoops everyone up. <laughs> but in general, they, they seem to, yeah, they, they seem to show the toys of quite well, which I, I quite appreciate. Obviously, I mean, it's a, it's a commercial for the toys, so they have to show them all. But it's just really cool that you get to see those and you get to sit there in front of your TV or your laptop with your vehicles and you're like, whoa, very cool. Well, in many respects, you kind of wish the vehicles could do what they do in the cartoon. For instance, the whale having enough internal space mm. for the Joes to play a card game inside. Like beds? Yeah, exactly. Or uh, the shark being a two-seater with actual seats. I mean, if you've ever had the shark toy in your hands, uh, putting Deep Six on his belly is just ludicrous. It's like he's looking at the, the floor the whole time. That beautiful glass canopy is all rendered useless. What's the about fact me? What's he about can't me? see! What? Probably cameras in the back of his... Uh, Logistics, brother. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's one thing. Um, another would be, I really like the G.I. Joe HQ. It kind of feels like a much larger version of, I think, the, the toy version. They've kind of made it this, this giant fortress. I love that giant gun that sticks out of it. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. It's it, it never comes into play, unfortunately. They've got this this cannon pointed in a fixed direction. I mean, I don't know if it has any lateral movement. It's probably pointed at Russia, elevate. I'm sure. It's pointed at Russia. Russia. <laughs> right. Well, they're never attacked, as, as at least in the episodes I've watched. I mean, there's like one, there's like a Christmas episode where like Cobra kind of <laughs> takes over the G.I. Joe base. But otherwise, like, they don't get attacked. It's like, Cobra knows where their base is. They don't, like, just constantly, like, yay, let's just go take on Joe today. Christmas is a serious holder. <laughs> no, especially if you've got a giant parrot. Ah. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. Rock! It's like Pollyzilla. <laughs> Timeless. Um, Polly seems to save the day quite a lot. Yeah, on that, that Christmas episode. And, uh, he was quite, uh, instrumental in the, um, in the Springfield episode as well, where he yeah. comes, comes along with this little mini laser camera, little mini laser camera, which he uses to kill the other Polly, the fake Polly, and then yeah, the and then later on he has it again. It's like where did he put it in between the first time and the second time? You don't want to know. Bird's got to have its secrets. Nice. <laughs> oh, Polly. So uh, another another point is um I. It's a small thing, but I, I appreciate it when they reclose the Joes appropriately for the weather, for the most part. Um, normally, you know, oh, yeah. if they're really cold, they'll, they'll put them in really cool, like, um, parkas or in whatever, snow clothes. But I mean, I think it was in, in um, 
uh, Gung Ho's original appearance in the comic books. Like it's snow, but he's wearing his his action figure outfit. Mm-hmm. And it's like that oh. was issue eleven, I think it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. I know all the numbers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and another general point would be um, shipwreck. Um, it shows that someone writing that show, someone back there, really loved this guy. Um, like, a lot. And he gets an intro into the series, in the, in the miniseries. And, um, he's also often central to a lot, a lot of stories. And especially in the ones that Paul has chosen tonight. Um, and things return for him as well. Like, in the memories of Mara, he meets this, this, uh, blue-skinned woman who's been experimented on by Cobra. And then later on, they, in There's No Place Like Springfield, they play on that. Cobra knows that he had an interest in this character, and they, you know, they kind of synthesized him, her, as his, his wife. And, and they have, they've supposedly had a kid together. Can you have sex with a synthoid? I'm sure you can. Yeah, it's like having sex no, with a No, actually, you can't, because his kid's a synthoid as well. Yeah. So, I wasn't talking about make... uh, procreation, I was oh, talking about... Sex. Copulation. Well, it'll be like a, like a sex doll, but it's alive. And, and gooey. Dude, that's probably why the synthoids were in, thought of in the first place. Yeah. Don't tell me Cobra was like, I want to take over the world with human clones. No, he was like, I want a sex buddy. Hey, you know, we could take over the world with these. <laughs> that would make sense. I mean, technology gets pushed by two things, military and porn, right? Yep. Jeez. No, no joke, seriously. Yep, that's why we have Blu-ray. <laughs> And DVD. We don't joke on Joburg. This is no, serious stuff. Very serious, yeah. Um, so those are general points. Um, and What's probably... the atomic bomb of the sex world, guys? Steven, you got to set something straight for me real quick, brother. I'll you do my said best. that the uh, Marvel Civil War was the best arc you've read. Better than the Cobra Civil War? Yep. Wow, really? Absolutely. You're, you're telling me that there was a more satisfying death than Serpentor getting an arrow in the eye. Yeah, Captain America getting a bullet in his head. All right, all right. I didn't want to go off the tangent. I just wanted to hear you defend it. <laughs> um, look, Serpentor only became cool in his introduction in the Marvel comics leading up to the Civil War. Uh, outside of that, he was an annoyance to me because I always regarded Cobra Commander as the rightful leader of Cobra. So when I read the Civil War arc... All of a sudden, I was like, wait, that's not even the real Cobra Commander anyway. And Serpentor's very charismatic, so I'm okay with him leading Cobra. He just looks like a fucking clown. So um, better he die at the hands of a character that I do like, uh, perhaps more than any other Cobra character, that being Zartan. Very cool move, by the way. Almost like offhand. Like, this war's gone on long enough. Let me get my, my bow and arrow and set things straight. I, I can still see the framework on that on that page. Can you see that, Paul, in your mind? Yeah. Thump. That, was, that was just a beautiful page. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a pencil's eye. All right. Sorry about that. He was laid low by an arrow. <laughs> wow. He's like Whoop. direct quote. Rainbow yeah. shot. Bam. So, yeah, uh, sorry, buddy. Um, I would definitely say that Marvel's Civil War... Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's all I have to say about that. But they, uh, good point, good point. I'd say it just edges out um, the Cobra Civil War 
because a lot of the action in Cobra Civil War was a lot of running and gunning uh, on a very flat a sort of airstrip. Uh, I, I find that dull kind of action. Um, the air battle was cool, but like tank warfare where you've got infantry mixed in with tanks and like there's just very few casualties. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I, I'm definitely nitpicking now. I feel you. I, I think it's time to revisit, brother. The recon yeah, team. Uh, the recon team going well into Cobra Island. That was cool. That was that was on point. Those guys, Falcon, Gung Ho, Spirit, Dial Tone, Tunnel Rats. Actually, I thought of another uh, a parallel. I just found it interesting. You know, Fett ends up in the Sarlacc. Firefly ends up in the freighter. That's yeah. Like, well, I, I don't know pretty much the, the okay. Boba Fett of Cobra, I think. Because he is one of the yeah, cool no, characters. I just thought that was odd. I like that. He's got the coolest line <laughs> in one of the animated episodes. It's episode 53 of the first season. Uh, entitled Skeletons in the Closet. Anyway, Firefly is is chasing down Barbecue. They're both in trouble bubbles. <laughs> he says, Die, Fireman! <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was <laughs> Die, Fireman! He was stealing his shtick, man. Holy. So, Rob, am I am I correct in assuming that those are your praiseworthy points for the Sunbow cartoon? Yeah, well, it was general praiseworthy points. Um, and probably my favorite episode or story was, I don't know what it's called, but it has to do with the Game Master. Um, yes, that is a cool story. It's very obviously a rip of, of arcades, the Marvel Comics villain. Um, but it was, yes. it's probably, I mean, so far, I mean, I still haven't finished watching all of the Sunbow. But so far, it, it, it was awesome, and it was a great opportunity to see Joe and Cobra have to work together against against something else. And it's a fairly silly episode. I was quite surprised when I, I realized that's probably my favorite episode so far. Hmm. It was a silly uh, one. Rob, correct me if I'm wrong here. Is that the episode where you see um, Destro in the bushes with a female Cobra officer? No, no, no. That's um... that same episode that I was talking about. Skeletons in the Closet. Uh, it's where Lady J uh, inherits, erroneously, uh, the estate that Destro's clan meet at. Oh, yes. Every okay, yeah. winter solstice. And they all have to wear masks. And they always wear those masks. And then when you see them all get, get together, you realize, hmm, Destro, the mask ain't so bad. <laughs> at least you're not a deer <laughs> or a donkey. Yeah, I shit you not, he makes a point in the episode, my family have sworn to never take off their masks. <laughs> well, he's got the conservative end of the deal, that's for sure, because he doesn't look like an orangutan. <laughs> but that's all like pagan stuff, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's more Cthulhu-esque, actually, because they ca- there's kind of like that monster at the bottom of the well, and they're kind of looking down at it, and, and then like at the end of the episode, he says to Baroness, like, Whatever you did uh, today didn't release crazy stuff or something. <laughs> wow, didn't we just watch that episode? <laughs> crazy stuff. A few hours ago. Two hours ago. Right. And in any case, watch that episode just for that line. Die, fireman! <laughs> Brilliant. 
I just love those female cover officers, dude. Like, oh yes, amen. Especially, but I'll when get we... into that later. Yep, yep, yep. Rob, anything like that you didn't like or that stood out mm. as like really annoying? And I mean, try not to like rip it apart. Just All your right. favorite oh my god moments. Favorite things that I didn't like that aren't rips. I don't know. I think in general, like the tone of the series obviously is really goofy. Like in general, and it, it and uh, because you know, having come from reading the comic books, it's, it's always weird seeing certain characters or like the way that they kind of handle the stories. Like, Cold Slither was very strange. Like, the whole, like, curve has gone broke, it's a cool concept, and then they come up with a crazy idea to, to kind of get the money back, which is forming a band. Which is insane. No, man, it's subliminal messaging. Or whatever. But also, like, also, the, the series uses brainwashing a lot. Like, a lot. I mean, just in these episodes, Cold Slither uses it. There's No Place uses it. Captives of Cobra uses it. I mean... It's like all over the place. Like brainwashing is like their favorite thing to like go back and do all the time. Guys, remember the brainwashed snake eyes that you have to give the pull to in G.I. Joe Atlantis Factor? Oh, wow. Well, clearly this is a theme that uh, permeates not only Sunbow, not only G.I. Joe's video game outings, but even our our G.I. Joe literary god, Larry Harmer, couldn't refrain from working in his brainwave scanner, and it just got worse as the as the comic book run continued. I mean, what started out as a very cool concept in issue number 10 quickly became something that almost every issue included by the, the sort of 120s, 30s, and 40s. Towards the demise of the, 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 the comic, the brainwave scanner was really done to death. So clearly, brainwashing is a is a device that GI Joe. Yeah, it's everywhere. Well, mm. I'm sure right now, at least in the comic books, um, fans of uh, Captain America are hoping he's been brainwashed, and that he hasn't actually always been an agent of Hydra. I'm pretty sure Hama's probably not slept since the '60s, so <laughs> yeah, he's usually on point. But yeah, in general, I mean, yeah, in general, it's just the tone of the series I find a bit too goofy at times. But sometimes the endings where they kind of do weird shit, like, like at the end of Cold Slither, they're like, "Wow, well, we, you know, what are we gonna do? They want music. Well, let's let's do the uh, let's do the theme song for the band. It's fun, but it, I think it's it's really it's really silly. Although there, there was a cool line in Captives of Cobra where um, Baroness is forming this plan in her head to kidnap. The, the family members of G.I. Joe and she's like, she asks Cobra Commander, tell me Commander who in all the world would you never let come to harm? Obviously expecting him to say like her or my mother or something and he says, me! <laughs> <laughs> the humor is great. The humor can be very, very good. And sometimes it, it, it does take a very adult tone that would go over Kids' heads, perhaps. Yeah, no, for sure. Like when they when they paint like certain characters with no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke. That's a very good joke. Um, another thing that kind of irritates me. It's not like a rip necessarily, but like when they set up certain things, and obviously that 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 are that feel like they're very game changing. Like in Captains Captains of Cobra, where yes, the Joe IDs, their identities are top secret, but then like Baroness is like. Oh, easy. We'll just break into the Pentagon. 
So they go ahead and they break in and they get about seven Joe's names. But like for the rest of the series, they now know those Joe's names. Like their family members of those Joe's are never safe. Like ever. Well, except of course for Gang Ho's family. All these 130 family members. Uh. <laughs> but anyway, I, I prefer my Joe's series, I think, in general. But these weren't all bad. I'm not saying they were bad. But anyway, I'm not ripping. Remember, I'm just, I'm just ripping. No, this is the point of this episode. It's like, we, I want to hear that. This is the moment where you can say stuff like that. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm very curious. I find it very interesting, actually. But yeah, I mean, in general, also, I like, I like it when they design when they design their own vehicles and stuff. Obviously not like the Cobra air transport thing which they use in Capitals of Cobra. And that very strange, gigantic what do they call it? An ATV or APC? Mm, the A T V in Captives of Cobra. Yeah. Yes. Which seems like they took some design characteristics from the pack rats. Yeah, you I was know, gonna say it's like a giant pack rat. <laughs> yeah, that you can put people in, you know, with the big balloon tires uh, and red weapon turrets. Uh, we didn't actually see it do any combat. It just transported these exploding crystals. But, yeah, it, it definitely did have, have echoes of that. And also echoes of the rough terrain vehicle from, gosh, I think it was uh, issue six and seven of the Marvel Comics run. Uh, their mission to Afghanistan. To rescue a Soviet bomber that looked like a UFO. Anyway, go back and read it, guys. It's really good. Probably my favorite two-parter from those early days. I'm going to echo a lot of what you said, Rob, and maybe add to it. Uh, certainly, the designs, character designs, and their various changing looks to go from Arctic to uh, scuba were very cool and well-handled. IDW put out a beautiful book that has um, production sketches and design uh, uh, swatches from the production, from, from the sort of in initial miniseries, uh, which showcased vehicles and character design. I've thumbed through the book a number of times, never actually dropped dollar on it, but you certainly get an appreciation for exactly how much work went into the design of this show. Some terrific artists uh, collaborated on, on creating Sunbow and making G.I. Joe animated. Which is a different discipline in, in many respects to, to the the, uh, the comic book artistry, uh, and and I'd, I'd say that the, the the comic books because they ran through a number of different artists, there were dips in art quality here and there, and errors. Whereas the the Sunbow cartoon managed for the most part to keep a very consistent look and a very clean. Japanimation or manga style, which is very, very attractive now. I far more enjoy watching the art style used in the Sunbow cartoon from the 80s than watching the G.I. Joe Renegades cartoon style, which is modeled after a more contemporary, uh, uh animation style, but just, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me, man. I, I like those classic manga-esque illustrations. Yeah, like mask and all of that. You know, they they all had that like style. Exactly. That, that style is beautiful. Bless those Japs, man. They they want fire, baby. And and certainly uh, on fire in more ways than one because included in nailing the characters various sort of on mission looks 
are a whole bunch of civilian and evening wear and even um, intimate wear, shall we say? Uh, lingerie or, or Lady J wearing a pink slip. I mean, it's just nothing else in the sort of milieu of, of G.I. Joe uh, media made the female characters look as sexy as they do in the cartoon. I draw attention to Lady J, for instance, um, wearing like a, a short sort of a, a cut-off sleeve wetsuit and looking banging. Or Baroness, for instance, who is gorgeous, uh, but sometimes look downright ugly in the, <laughs> the comic book, uh, particularly in the teens of the run. She looks incredible in an episode like Cobrathon, where she's in a, a black uh, dress with this insane plunging neckline. I mean, the stuff that they got away with <laughs> in this cartoon um, gives me pause to thought. Uh, certainly in dealing with concepts like death, they say things like, oh, I almost got killed, or I'll kill you, fireman. I mean, using the K word and using the, the word death and like, you're going to die. Uh, this is something that they got away with in the 80s, perhaps. <laughs> But I don't think a kid's cartoon would allow concepts like that to to seep in at all, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, guys. Well, if you look at um, Worlds Without End as well, I mean, you literally see the three skeletons of dead G.I. Joes. Yes, they're from a different world, but still, like, you, like wow, these are dead Joes. Pretty heavy concepts to drop on your kid's cartoon. And I, I think nowadays, I mean, if you want to to end a character... Uh, <laughs> typically the word being thrown around that, that I've noticed on more than a few occasions, so it's definitely, definitely a thing, is, you'll be destroyed! I don't want to destroy you, but I might have to! <laughs> or like, you know, you say destroy and not to kill. Um, I think, yeah, definitely the word kill has fallen out of favor. My second point, okay, first point was the designs, and Rob, I think you dealt with the vehicle designs excellently well. I mean, I don't need to add anything to that. The Cobra Airship, wonderful, wonderful designs that look also very much in the character of an anime. Sort of neo-apocalyptic, vastly over-designed, over-technical, boxy in places, rounded in places, but basically looking like a, a scarred, giant battleship. You know, the, the best example being the the opening sequence to G.I. Joe the movie, also by Sunbow Animation, that Cobra airship, I mean, just blows my mind. Similarly, the big blue <laughs> flying saucer Cobra airship, also not a bad design. I mean, the fact that it had so much texture on the outside and, and allowed for, like, a uh, shipwreck to fly a shark down a cavern and, and be chased by, by a rattler in an almost Star Wars and New Hope trench battle. I mean, that, that stuff is just too cool. Uh, so design aside and character design aside, voice acting, insane. The casting on, on this cartoon was sublime to the point where if characters in my mind do not ring true to the, the, the voice casting that they had in the Sunbow cartoon, it undermines them. Like Destro will never sound right with a Scottish accent for me in spite of the fact that the characters are Scotsmen. Because in my mind, Destro will sound like Destro sounds from the cartoon. There's no other way to play it. 
It has to be that kind of Cobra Commander. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, I'm butchering it because yeah, I, I, I don't have that kind of range. But like, similarly, Flint on the page of the G.I. Joe comic book seems a little bit, uh, well, it, it's true to his, car, his file card in, in making him uh, a little bit preppy, a little bit too educated, um, a little bit too white collar. But the voice casting of Flint in the Sunbow cartoon, he is the man. I'm sorry, that whoever that guy was laying down the voice just absolutely nailed it. That is such a heroic voice, and it, that's Flint for me. So while I am always going to be on the side of the fence of the comic books uh, when it comes to my my mind's appreciation of, of what the G.I. Joe universe should look and feel and sound like, I'd say to get a truly balanced, holistic view of what G.I. Joe is, you've got to take both sources and take the best of both. And the voice acting on the Sunbow cartoon is certainly a high point. That cost, they had a lot of fun, but they got the job done and they did it to perfection. Yeah, and also to refer back to also, you know, World End, whatever it's called. The dude playing Steeler was going insane in the episode. I mean, the character was bitten by whatever weird creature. I think that was Chris Lotter. I think that was uh, Starscream Cobra Commander. It does really sound like him, yeah. but like he was going, he has a lot of stuff to play with in that episode. Like the character was going completely insane. You see this character falling apart in front of you on the screen I and mean, acting crazy. Like to me, it was laughable a lot of the time, but it was still, it was like, wow, you're showing this in a cartoon, this character kind of completely breaking down mentally. Hmm. It just conveys so much character, hearing the voices. And in many respects, the sound cues also helped. Uh, the music that was I- implemented in the cartoon obviously is not a dimension that you could ever include in a comic book. And some of those cues are fantastic. In fact, let me drop one in right now. The kind of G.I. Joe cartoon sneaking music, mm. it's got to be my favorite. I mean, it just gives me goose flesh just thinking about it. I uh, love that piece of music, man. Mm, yeah. So much. Still a little, works. A little bit sort of 80s electro, but then with some, some beautiful soaring strings uh, that come in. I mean, and the, the G.I. Joe theme as well, it's kind of jazzy. It's got, it's got like uh, live drums and then brass. Mishy and I, when when I got the uh, box set, the animated series box set, uh, you know, every time it started off, I, I'm not one of those people who skips the opening. I think especially for G.I. Jokes, I really love that intro song. And uh, Mishy and I, every now and then it comes in and it's like, dun 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 Every time, we just like giggle about it. But because it's so catchy and it's so kind of major, it's so like, it's on such an upbeat, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, you know something good's coming, or at least something entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Something's coming! <laughs> My final point. When I started playing with G.I. Joe action figures, the action that would play out was in the same vein as the cartoon. 
which makes me remiss that I only discovered the cartoon as uh, as I was approaching probably the age of uh, 12, 13, 14, getting a little bit older and getting a little bit more sophisticated with how I played with my action figures. Yes, I still played with my action figures as a teenager. But before the age of about 10, it was literally a case of you drive your vehicles into the battlefield on either side and they start firing at each other and it's kind of bouncing off the armor and the shields even the extremely exposed glass canopies everything's just kind of uh, coming to a stalemate and that's how the action would play out and you'd involve the airborne legions you'd involve the ground troops the vehicles it would all play out like a gigantic war things got more sophisticated uh, in the 90s of course uh, with Ninja Force basically dictating how the whole thing went down by silently taking out all of the uh, opposition before open warfare could even become a thing. But as I say, the cartoon would have shaped my playtime so much more if I'd known it earlier on. So it speaks to the 10 years and younger Steven. And that's where I really, really appreciate its place. I can imagine myself back then, I can kind of retrograde my age in my mind, think to myself, how would I perceive this as a 10-year-old? And with these very warm memories of how I used to enjoy my action figures back then, that's how Sunbow cartoons play out for me now. I'm like, yeah, man, red and blue lasers! <laughs> anyway, passing the mic on. Because <laughs> that's what I love about Sunbow. Kujo. Our brother from North America, who was yes, actually sir. around to watch this cartoon when it aired on a Saturday morning. Dude, what do you love about Sunbow? Well, I, I didn't watch too much of the the cartoon in real time, um, just because I, I, I love the outdoors, as kids do. What the hell's wrong with you? You went outdoors exactly. and you could be watching TV. Uh, we don't have that much time, brother. What um, sort of an American are you? Exactly. I think the thing that resonates about... Uh, their animation is is that the the apex is the opening for the movie, right? I mean, I mean nobody's forgetting that. But uh, as far as the cartoon itself, uh, I really enjoy how they handle the twins, uh, the Cobra twins. I feel like uh, at least at this age, I, I usually look at who I think the writers are enjoying writing lines for, and, and the twins always have their attention. You know, I, I also think Scarlet. Uh, is a character that they enjoy to feature because she's just so interesting. The low points are, are you know, uh, fodder for everybody. So, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's what I remember about Sumbo. Nice. Okay, <laughs> take a deep breath. <laughs> Paul, Sunbow apologist, Lopesha, <laughs> takes up the mic. <laughs> Sunbow apologist, you say. <laughs> No, tonight we're all Sunbow apologists. <laughs> no one's apologizing for it. We're just all appreciating we're it. Sunbow lovers. Sunbow mm. appreciators. Chase the rainbow. I think, as far as Rob's concerned, it's not that we're appreciating it, it's just that we're taking time not to depreciate it. <laughs> Except for me, because I dropped Serious Dollar a few years back. They released this uh, really beautiful box set of the G.I. Joe Sunbow cartoon. I was still working for Anime Works. Yeah, I saw this thing in the in the previews magazine, which is for Diamond. 
and I honestly didn't think we would get it, but I ordered it anyway. And it came in at a very hefty 1,700 rand. My mom actually paid for it for me. She got it for me as a Christmas gift. But it was a cool Christmas because what had happened is my parents had just gotten a new TV for themselves. And I had helped them get a uh, really cool like DVD player. So that was the first thing that tested their DVD player. Because I wanted to see if the DVD player had a region restriction. It did. But the first disc in that G.I. Joe box set is what I used to do the unlock. Uh, well, you know, to test if I'd unlock the region. Anywho, some of the best money I ever spent. Uh, I had only had a, a brief sort of encounter with the animated series as a kid because a friend of mine had a lot of the Action Force videotapes. He was a G.I. Joe buddy as well. In fact, I have half of his condor now. It used to be the whole of his condor, but let's not go there. Anyway... Yeah, I had all of his tapes, and I had his movie, and that stuff used to keep me going. I used to love watching those tapes over and over and over again, and I used to lament not having this uh, cartoon series here. And uh, when things like Mask Crusader and, uh, well, actually, Mask Crusader was probably the closest thing to the G.I. Joe animated series uh, that we actually had on TV, aside from the actual animated G.I. Joe animated series, but we just had it on, like, sort of a sidechain channel, which I couldn't get, which was Bob TV. Anyway, I digress. So, Sunbow G.I. Joe is very special for me. It has been quite instrumental in a lot of my favorite characters. It's been quite instrumental in uh, what I think is a cartoon, what I think makes for a fun action cartoon. And I still watch it today, and I also cringe a little with some of the cheesiness, and I, I don't look at it thinking it's pure gold. Well, actually, I do look at it thinking it's pure gold. But, you know, pure gold's also not exactly perfect. It's got its... its, it's um, it's got its imperfections, you know, when you see a gold nugget, if you guys have ever seen one. Buddy, if I saw a nugget of gold, I probably would have a better microphone. <laughs> Just saying. So I want to see a gold nugget. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I was about to see a gold nugget, know. but I don't even think it was real. Because when you go to when you go to like Gold Reef City and things like that here, they show you actual gold. But yeah, whatever. Anyway. So some cool highlights about Sunbow. I'm going to start with some something that none of you guys have mentioned. Low Light's voice. Low Light, and I mean, Stephen went into the voice cast, which is also one of my absolute favorite things about this TV series, and Transformers, incidentally. Uh, I love the performances in G.I. Joe. I, I think the actual voice work is on the spot on. I'm not going to get into it too much, but I really love Lady J's voice. I really love Baroness's voice. Obviously, Snake, I mean, you can't think of Cobra Commander without that hiss and without that little bit of a snaky drawl that he has. So, oh, the voice I thought you were about to say Snake Eyes' voice. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna, I thought that'd be funny, but I didn't. Still funny though. <laughs> so, that's one of the highlights. Low Light's voice, highlight. If you guys have uh, recalled the movie uh, when Falcon's getting chewed out and he's like, it's go time. You know, like that, that line, or not, that I'm quoting the line incorrectly, but you get what I'm saying, that, that like inflection. Show I love time. it. It's very, very cool. Um, I love how the series is kind of, in a weird way, trying to be more hardcore than it actually is. The focus on individual characters is another thing I love about Sunbo. Uh, every episode tries to put one character on, a, on the podium more than the others, trying to give them a backstory. Or in, in the case of things like Captives of Cobra, 
it kind of creates, you know, like that family dynamic. So we learn a lot about Scarlet really quickly. We learn a lot about Spirit really quickly. We learn a lot about barbecue really quickly, that kind of stuff. I always thought that was really interesting. And on some episodes, characters really had their moment to shine, uh, shine like um, sci-fi or low light. Um, not low light, damn it. Although low light has a really cool uh, episode where they deal with these nightmares, with these night terrors. And uh, sort of some of the sort of basic psychology uh, into why he is the way he is, which I thought was really cool. It's actually quite scary and dark for a kiddies cartoon because that's a real thing and obviously in the 80s because we were all growing up as latchkey kids we were all like you know scared shit of the dark because our parents were always working and uh, except for Cujo he was outside playing and stuff <laughs> in the outdoors the night raven pilot don't know if you guys have seen it there's a female night raven pilot she's technically a stratoviper but I think her name is actually raven oh yeah she's and I always thought that the Stratoviper figures were kind of feminine. I mean, they were physically smaller than most other figures. I mean, that's mainly because they had to fit into the Night Raven cockpit. But anyway, continue. Yeah, she's she's one of those takeaway characters that I would love to see them do a figure subscription service of or something. I think she's so obscure, but so cool at the same time because she's a Cobra turncoat. She eventually turns her back on Cobra. But hell, like... Uh, another female Cobra character is always welcome in my book, especially one that the actual pilot, you know, uh, other than Baroness being a helicopter pilot or a trained helicopter pilot. The No Place Like Springfield episode, I love it. The reason I mentioned early, it earlier is because it's got a very Philip K. Dick vibe to it. Uh, I didn't even know that when I first watched it. It's actually because of stuff like There's No Place Like Springfield that I learned to appreciate those kind of stories growing up because the idea of some guy, a guy who's been marooned, he's, all of his memories have been implanted and he's being sort of fucked with. I love that whole Truman Show vibe. It was before the Truman Show came out, the movie The Truman Show, which everybody's like, oh my God, it's so amazing. G.I. Joe did it as a two-parter, which was really smart and it's been done in books. I mean, like I said, it's a very Philip K. Dick thing. I love that it's in the show. It shows that these writers... When they were sort of like hitting their stride, they were really trying wild and wacky and goofy things and really digging into things that they liked and turning them into episodes. Well, you say that it was the inspiration for The Truman Show. Have you ever watched a 1965 film called 56 Hours? I haven't. I haven't. What's it called? Here's the summary. Maybe, maybe it'll ring a bell. In occupied Germany in 1949... American military officer Jefferson Pike, played by James Garner, wakes up in a U.S. Army hospital with no memory of the previous five years. A kindly military psychiatrist, Rod Taylor, and his coolly detached nurse, Eva Marie Saint, draw out Pike's last clear memories, which are of General Eisenhower's final briefing for the Normandy invasion in June 1944. Soon, Pike realizes that his doctor and nurse are not who they claim to be and that he's in great danger. Spoiler ahead, it's before the Normandy landings and they're trying to pump him for information on where D-Day will take place. It's a fucking cool movie. And they made it into a G.I. Joe cartoon episode. I stumbled upon this film and loved it intensely. Because 
just like the first, I suppose, 10 minutes <laughs> of There's No Place Like Springfield. Oh, no, no, I, I exaggerate. I, I think There's No pla there's no Place Like Sp Springfield leaves it uh, up in the air for a little bit longer than that. But once Shipwreck wakes up in Springfield, you kind of don't know what's going on. And that is a very cool place to play, to mislead your audience, especially since your audience are all kids, typically. It was definitely an episode that did cool things in that regard. And also, doing a callback to Mara, who was set up as Shipwreck's love interest, Mara the Mermaid, <laughs> the Cobra Mermaid with blue skin. Nice. A little Mystique reference up in there. Uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about, just in general, why these episodes were picked? You say it's because they all had something slightly different to throw into the cauldron of, of uh, the G.I. Joe world. What about Captives of Cobra? What made you put this on the list? What I find makes Captives of Cobra different is it's something unique to G.I. Joe in that G.I. Joes don't have families. They kind of become disavowed in a weird way. So their families either believe that they've died, some of the IDW run with their, their sort of reboot attempts and things like that. I've always tried to write it as, the G.I. Joes are essentially dead. These are people that used to exist, but now exist as G.I. Joe. Um, so they have families that have completely um, sort of said their goodbyes and everything. Obviously to protect their families and obviously to remove any weakness from G.I. Joe. So in the TV series, you have a few occurrences, but not many, where you actually bump into the G.I. Joe's sort of parents, sisters, cousins, surrogate sort of kids, if you're going to put it that way, or surrogates, you know, like uh, in the form of like Shipwreck having, there's actually a, a young boy who regards Shipwreck, you know, as his sort of uncle, uh, which is in Captive of Cobra. You get this dimension to these characters that's not really seen in any of the other mediums. So I find Captives of Cobra actually kind of, it's kind of a dick thing. It's, it's like, Cobra's actually going for your family, and that's that's a really shitty thing to do. I mean, that's like, that's mafia crap, you know? Plus, they're brainwashing them, you know, to turn them into monsters. I just thought it was one of the highs, or if not the high of Cobra plots, you know, in terms of evil. Like, it's actually quite a, it's a really dick thing. I mean, this is not giant vegetables that can explode and whatever. <laughs> this is like you know, people's families. You know, this is not brainwashing animals to take over the world. The, the weird thing with that is that actually, I mean, them brainwashing and using the family members, it actually in the end has, they're not doing it towards the end of any specific purpose they came up with already. It was just in response to G.I. Joe getting to the explosive crystals first. It wasn't even like we're planning this out really far ahead. It was just like, Huh, why don't we just uh, control their family members and just cause some trouble? It's kind of, yeah, that is very diabolical. But the weird thing also is, why don't they just use snake suits? Because, because I mean, it's established in the comic books and stuff, but then in the cartoons they establish them as robots, you know? Mm -hmm. While you have bats, which are robots, actually. But still, I, I, it was an interesting concept, I think. I didn't actually think of that, that their whole brainwashing subplot could have been avoided by just throwing them in a snake. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't even have to do that. That controls them for you. <laughs> but then I suppose uh, the Joes wouldn't immediately recognize their loved ones. Oh. 
It's convenient though that the first those to come up on that file at the Pentagon, all the ones that won't leave. <laughs> More convenient still that they all get recalled so they can conveniently come up against their own family. Mm, okay, whatever. We're, we're sweating we're, the, the we're details. We're just gently ribbing. I have a, a cool take home from that particular story, which is it is very cool to see Scarlet's family in particular. Yes. Because there is is serious reference to her file card, the fact that she comes from a family of martial artists, three brothers, and she is the little sister, and when she comes home to their family dojo, they all throw down on her, which I think is terrific. It's uh, it's almost Batman Begins-esque layers of cool. And then the fact that once she dusts and the Cobra agents arrive, the Crimson Guardsmen, for instance, this family of martial artists are like, okay, come on, let's go. We can take you. It takes... Storm Shadow showing up and showing them who's boss to ultimately subdue Scarlet's family. But it just goes to show how tough Scarlet is to have risen to the top of this this family of fighters and the father who looks badass. Like, <laughs> yeah, know, like this is the Norris Chris family, you know what I mean? <laughs> mixed with that guy from Bold and the Beautiful, mixed with Chuck Norris kind of badass. I mean, that's... And the guy from Involved in the Beautiful just came to my mind because he has that fantastic white beard. Beard, yeah. Yeah, whatever his um, name is. <laughs> that dude. But, but exactly. And that's why I was saying earlier, like, I love that we get that, that interesting, or when I say interesting, we just get that little bit of family dynamic for some of these characters. That's really cool. And I, I mean, I love that Gung Ho is kind of, uh, every he, you know his family love him, but he's kind of like the big dog in his family. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like the people in his family are are like more rough than he is. You know what I mean? Like they're more hardcore than he is. They just like they're just too rough for the army. You know they're too rough to be in GI Joe. I thought that was cute. It's nice that they delved deeper with the characters instead of just saying, "Oh, we got these colorful guys on one hand and colorful guys on the other hand. Let's make them fight each other." The fact that we got backstories on individuals is terrific. The writers made concerted efforts to delve a little bit deeper than than a guy like Ron Friedman uh, got the ball rolling with the miniseries. Because that guy pains me to say it, but he was a real douchebag. In, in disregarding things like the file card, things that later writers then used as their, their sort of starting off point. And what a fantastic starting off point to have. The file cards were an absolute boon in the hands of the Sunbow writers. Asshole like Ron Friedman didn't appreciate that. Fool. Yep. Ah. <laughs> One of the reasons I love Cold Slither, and, like, I'll say this without shame, I love that song. It is super catchy. It is super dumb. But I love that that episode is probably one of the goofiest G.I. Joe episodes not the goofiest but the coolest goofiest episode because it deals with okay yes it deals with brainwashing again but it deals with real brainwashing with like social brainwashing you know marketing it deals with the music industry I love how technically everybody in the music industry is like an asshole (laughs) and uh, how like Cobra Commander is just such a prima donna and 
how the, the Dreadnoughts are actually just suited to being rock stars. I love the combination of all of that stuff coming together. It's just like somebody went, hey, you know what, let's, let's turn G.I. Joe into Gem for one episode in, and, and kind of to see what we can do with it and have fun with it. But it's actually kind of a legitimate story. I mean, if you look at Bieber Mania, you look at these girls that go crazy for Justin Bieber and you look at, and you had that other group of, uh, I think they're called One Direction or One Dimension or whatever the hell they are. Five seconds of summer. I don't know. Five minutes of summer. Or something. I don't know. Jeez. I don't know who these people are. But there are people that go crazy for them. And I've heard like One Direction songs and I've heard Justin Bieber stuff. And I'm, I'm just like, you know, it's actually, if these people already are talented, it's wasted talent. I mean, it's just, it's such bubblegum shit, you know, like, and that's exactly what I like about the episode. It's like bubblegum shit brainwashes everybody into becoming pawns for Cobra. If that's not a statement on what the music industry and what the media industry does to us as a, as a population, then... I don't know what is because it's got a bit of that, you know, conspiracy vibe to it that I, I just enjoyed. You know, maybe I'm just taking more out of it than there actually is. Oh, there's so much, buddy. So much. I have two personal highlights from Cold Sliver. Number one, G.I. Joe raid one of Cobra's bases after Cobra's gone completely bankrupt. <laughs> and the twins have foreclosed on, on the base and they're showing a bunch of like like terrorist statesman uh, clichés around the place. The one guy looks like Fidel Castro, the other guy looks like the Ayatollah. <laughs> like and then there's a Saddam Hussein looking dude. I mean, it is priceless. Check out that particular sequence if you if you want to have a good laugh at like I suppose uh, 80s referencing of uh, terrorist states. Uh, and just like, okay, these are the real bad guys. Forget the people in blue. <laughs> these are enemy number one. And then the other high point, <laughs> Lady J with her midriff out. Oh, yes. Oh, and, and Scarlet. Oh, yes, yes, Rob. <laughs> I, I think I shared this with you guys when I originally watched the episode, but at the end of the episode, um, Scarlet um, decides to destroy the the um, the subliminal subliminal <laughs> subliminal message like console machine thing. So she picks up the chainsaw and she starts like basically fucking the console. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you isolate that and make it into a GIF, uh, it's it's pretty dirty what yeah, she's doing with that chainsaw. I think they knew what they were doing. <laughs> But Steven's I don't totally was... know what they're doing. This thing was <laughs> primarily animated in Japan, and it was probably done low cost, as cheap as Sunbow could get it done. FYI, hentai is done by a lot of those same studios. Wow. So I would not be surprised. What Steven just brought up about Tomix and Zamot and Kudo's appreciation of Tomix and Zamot, they're kind of, they are Cobra, and I think when they're introduced, they're definitely like, ah, these are the heads of my Crimson Guard. But they kind of become businessmen as as the entire series goes along and they're kind of almost like a third party more than they are exclusively cobra it's like you know suddenly cobra's messing up they're like whoop nope we're businessmen we're, we're selling off all your assets and whatever else and i think that's really cool that's a nice aspect to characters you know they're not just these these bad guys they're bad guys in a completely different way you know where like big business is, is almost like the bigger bad guy more than terrorism 
or terrorism is big business. Yes. Yeah, which is big in the 80s. I mean, there was like the yuppie culture and the sort of stock market crash and all that shit uh, in the 80s. I mean, you know, that was all perpetuated by like, you know, evil men, you know, in high towers like, you know, like Zay Martin Tomax, you know. Uh, Time's a flat circle, brother. Exactly, man. They're animated really gracefully. Like, they move across the screen really smooth. It's weird. It's like there's actually more specialists in Cobra than Zaymot and Tomax. But Zaymot and Tomax are responsible for so many feats of acrobatics and, you know, treachery and things like that, that they are, you know, they are well-suited in, in the Cobra hierarchy. I love those I guys. Think, but I find that they work better in the cartoon and more so in the cartoon than they do in the comic book. Because of their sheer sort of goofiness, even though you can take them seriously, I just find that they have that presence that a character like Harley Quinn and Mad Hatter has. How those characters fit in the animated, in the Batman animated series well, in my opinion, don't translate that well into the comic book. That's how I feel about Samuel and Tomax. Okay, let's talk about another big thing in Sunbow that is really, really cool. I'm going to kind of like wind down with this one just because it's quite a big one. But Shipwreck. Shipwreck is the de facto star of the Sunbow series. Uh, hands down. I, I don't know if you guys agree. I mean, there's a lot of great characterization across the board with all of the Joes. But I just find that Shipwreck has, a, as I think Rob or Steven mentioned earlier, there is a lot of emphasis put on Shipwreck as a character. Definitely. I, I think I did mention that. It's, it's weird. But I mean, I, it just feels like some a bunch of people there, they're all like, we love sailors, and this is our man, and let, let's flesh this guy out as much as possible, at least feature him as much as, as we would like to feature him. There are elements of Han Solo, but there are equal parts every man. I mean, he, he he's a very flawed character, surprisingly. I mean, for, for a, a cartoon, they've really managed to translate that. I mean, he is a fuck-up. But he is placed in this extraordinary situation. Shipwreck is? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, if you got a parrot following you around, you're doing a, a couple things okay. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much more to this character as well. Like, he seems to have such interesting back stories. Like, I think it's also in, um, you know, uh, the Springfield one, where, like, he has an interaction with Polly. Like, how do I know that you're the real Polly? And then Polly's like, remember that time, um, what was it? He's like, remember that time in, in Annapolis? In Annapolis? Remember that time in Annapolis? And then Shipwreck's like, don't say anymore. <laughs> what the hell did he and Polly get up to in Annapolis? Yeah, and I think, I think the best way to figure that out is if you guys take some time, and if our listeners take some time to just YouTube SNL's The Falconer, I think you'll figure out what Shipwreck's past is really like. Um, <laughs> and you guys will get that reference when you watch it. The thing is, yeah, like, with Shipwreck, Shipwreck kind of represents uh, what a real person going to the army is like. Or the Navy. Yeah, or the Navy. You know, I think it's great that, like, characters like Flint are, like, so well-versed uh, and so well-educated, and characters like Lady J are extremely well-educated. And I'm not saying, and please... If anybody in the military is listening to this, I'm not. There's not a judgmental thing. It's just that when we were growing up, traditionally the military was not seen as a career choice. The military was seen as that thing that you could do if you were an outdoors kid, you know, like 
for example, you just didn't want to be an engineer or a lawyer, or you were a bit of, like, I don't want to say fuck up in the school, but you know what I mean? That was kind of what the army was. I mean, it was that, like, you could either become a criminal or join the military. And shipwreck kind of, for me, is, is that kind of character, that stereotype. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen, it's a stereotype. It's not something I necessarily believe in. But I feel that shipwreck is a stereotype. And he's stereotypical of the high school dropout cool guy that gets himself into a lot of shit with his uh, Ford Mustang and then realizes when he has to take a left or a right turn in life, one is going to lead him to crime and the other one is going to lead him to the military. And he goes through the crime route first before he becomes a soldier kind of thing. Like I said, maybe I'm putting too much into this character. Hey, but that's just kind of how I see it. You know, that's how it plays out for me. He's Americana, baby. He's Americana. Also, I don't know if you guys caught this, and it's actually great that Rob and Steve watched this particular episode. This is the episode where uh, Lady J inherits a castle. In Sunbow, Lady J and Destro are sort of related to each other, distantly. Oh, yes. Did you guys catch that? Yep. Yeah, the Baroness kind of drops that. He's like, oh, I, I'm so glad that I'm not actually related. And, she, and then she's like, oh, but Destro, you really are. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, when you say it like that, you make the show sound like quite an intellectual pursuit, Rob. Um, <laughs> also, these are just little knickknacks of information. The man from Auntie. Oh, like, that episode. I fucking love that episode. How mm-hmm. cool is the man from Auntie? Like, I love that shit. Well, I love it for that character, but also the fact that, like, the... The Joes are kind of beset by very real problems. The armadillo breaks down, and they have to push it into a, a cave and repair it. Like, it's not a case of like, oh, my armadillo broke down, let me just jump into the parked Sky Striker and continue the mission. It, it was a great and very kind of down-to-earth uh, story arc, in spite of the fact that they had this 007 knockoff. G.I. Joe is so efficient in the, in the animated series, and then, like you said, you have this episode full of mishaps. And those are not really mishaps. That's kind of like shit that really happens, as you've alluded to. It's not like G.I. Joe's fucking up because the armadillo packed up or whatever. I mean, that's why a lot of the times these vehicles have, like, trench shovels on the side of them, you know, to dig them out of holes and shit like that. You know, but this man from Auntie really kind of rubs Flint, and I love it. It gives him so much shit. He, he really makes you... You, you really just like him and like him at the same time. It's an interesting character. And, and in its own right, it's also a character that could have even had his own TV show, even though he was supposed to be some kind of play on, like you said, James Bond, Man from Uncle, that kind of concept. And then the Viper is coming. Remember the Viper is coming? Have you guys seen that episode? Beautiful, oh. beautiful. Infamous. Yes, I do remember what that What happens episode. is... Yeah, the, the Joes are like... Twist. Yeah, they keep getting down to a party. They finally got some time for R and R, and they they just like chilling out. And they they got that song going the whole time. And barbecues there, and even Snake Eyes is like you know being social and shit. And then they get a phone call. The Viper is coming, and and it's just and it just sets this whole party into mass hysteria. <laughs> it is a very good episode. I think people should check it out. Let's not ruin the twist for them. Although, you know, we've ruined it by saying that there is a twist. 
I'm not going to spoil it for them. I'm, I'm just going to say that the Joes are exceptionally paranoid. They must be slightly elevated because they're worried about every little fucking thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's great. But that's an episode guys should definitely check out. Just because I think it's one of those, irrespective of it being a G.I. Joe thing, it's just something everybody should check out as a cartoon. It's just, it, it just shows the hokiness of the 80s. And then that episode, incidentally, aired on my birthday in 1985. Nice. So, yeah. So I, I, that was odd. Um, when I f- figured that out, that was cool. But yeah, other than that, guys, I mean, there's all my reasons, all the things that I love about Sunbow in a bow. Steve wanted to hear a bit more about why I like Memories of Mara. Well, yeah, Memories of Mara and Worlds Without End, surprisingly, are the episodes that we've touched the least on out of your recommended viewing list. So I think just give us a quick, quick idea of why they made the cut, man. Worlds Without End is dark, and that makes it cool. Uh, it's actually Memories of Mara and Worlds Without End are both dark episodes. They deal with, like, fairly serious subplots, and that's what makes them stand out for me. Worlds Without End has got that great um, alternate reality gig. Uh, I don't want to, like, spoil it for anybody who's who's never seen it before, but it's really cool to see the G.I. Joe's world turned on its head. And as Rob mentioned before, you see the skeletons of dead Joe's it's got a very Terminator-esque feel to it, a uh, very Judgment Day feel to it, which which makes it stand out um, and, and makes it stand out uh, in the whole series as as, uh, as a notable episode. And it puts the spotlight on a character we never see again. But I'm not going to mention who that is because I think you guys should check it out. Deep inside of a parallel universe It's getting harder and harder to tell what came faster? Dude, parallel universe concepts were something that I always enjoyed flirting with as a child with action figures. You know, go, going to a world that is like ours, but with one or two major fundamental differences and how that affects everything. So if I had seen Worlds Without End, it probably would have become the dominant play pattern of my, my childhood if I had that story rolling around in my head. But there's a there's a common thread between Memories of Mara and Worlds Without End. Does anyone want to take a swipe at what that common thread might be? <laughs> he laughs. Does he have an answer? I don't have an answer. Sleeping um, with the enemy, man. Oh, <laughs> yes, Involve cross-G.I. Joe Cobra romances. In Worlds Without End, Steeler... Is banging the Baroness? Who saw yeah. that coming? And then, of course, in Memories of Mara, uh, Shipwreck falls in love with a cobra mermaid who happens to be a cobra. Mermaid. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We can't lose sight of the fact that she is a cobra officer. And a mermaid. Yeah. <laughs> she drank the Kool-Aid, man. She was on the payroll before they screwed her into losing her ability to breathe above water. And therein lies the, one of the things that I actually love about that episode. It uh, once again highlights that Cobra are actually bad guys and that they kind of are very happy to experiment on their own people and, and are very happy to just treat people as, as trash, as, as, uh, as commodities. And I think it's very important that a cartoon emphasizes that kind of thing because people today 
that's us, <laughs> by the way. We are treated as commodities um, when we work for certain businesses. You know, they don't give a shit about us. The higher ups don't know what your name is, that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that like the, the sort of military is more positive than that, but in the military, you know, you kind of you're part of something bigger, um, even though your orders are coming from on high and you're doing what may later be really bad things or whatever or turn out to be really bad things. But in the case of like Cobra, they're trying to like highlight that, yeah, you know what? When people actually don't give a shit about your humanity, about the fact that you're a human being and they're willing to test on you and they're willing to, to do all of the shit that they've done tomorrow, then maybe you shouldn't be with an organization like that, you know? Maybe you should like wise up and get the hell out of Dodge. And I think that that's quite a, an important thing in that Memories of Mara episode. Plus, it's great to see a love interest that, okay, yes, like Steve said, it's sleeping with the enemy, that's great, but it's great to see a love interest that is not another character. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not like, you know, Lady J and Flint and Duke and Snake Eyes and or Scarlet, you know? It's kind of like a, here's an external person, here's a person from the outside world. The reason, and just to tie it up, up put it all in a nutshell, those five episodes, with the exception of Cold Slither, are actually, I would say, the, some of the gems of the Sambo series in that those stories could be elevated a little bit to a more mature kind of storytelling. And I find that when I was a kid, there's no place like Springfield or something that bored me a little bit. But I know why, because it's actually not necessarily a story for a kid. It's more a story for like a teenager and a young adult and a and an adult, dare I say. It's a slightly more advanced than an average cartoon story. So check out 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and check out 36 hours. I mean, I'm going to, um, now that Steve's wising me up to its existence. I didn't know that it existed. There's actually an anime which uses the same formula as well. It's not quite exactly the same formula, but Yuki Kaze has a similar sort of um, plot line running through it as well. So check that out if you like anime, folks. Give me any American for 36 hours and I'll give you back a traitor. <laughs> nice. It is possible that uh, Baroness saw Steeler's 5 o'clock shadow and wanted to see what sandpaper felt like. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that in, I don't mean that in a, you know, but yeah. Hmm. The vaginal void. Needed a good buff. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean it how it came out, but yeah. Yeah, man. Well, that's a pity. Cold steel. <laughs> oh. I had to look at Steeler's picture. <laughs> I think this has been a great episode. I mean, these episodes you've recommended were kind of part of how far I've gotten with the cartoon series. I think the, the ones I hadn't yet watched were literally, I think, the Springfield one. And I'm looking forward to continuing on with the with the rest of the cartoon series and seeing what else is out there. Oh yeah, I'm glad to hear that, Bob. The the thing is like ah, I just find that GI Joe as a cartoon is the blueprint for 80s cartoons. And if you watch any other cartoon, you'll see that from the 80s, especially if it's a boys' cartoon, you'll see it has a similar formula. And I like to think that that it's a little bit more than a toy commercial. Probably right about that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe episodes that are less toy-centric, like uh, There's No Place Like Springfield, and that's why it was probably boring to you as a child, 
But let me just tell you, these cartoons are hugely inspirational to me getting my collection of vintage Joes out and assembling the exact costs of the show. For instance, right now on my desk in front of me, I have a straight arm breaker, swivel arm clutch. I've got Steeler. I've got the Baroness. Hmm. And they're, you know, making out in the corner. And then all on his own, I've got Shipwreck dipping his toes into the water and thinking about this beautiful blue skinned girl that he had one, one night under the stars on a beach somewhere. Yeah, man. That is the basis for my modern era collection. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, why else would I want to get Mutton Junkyard? <laughs> because they end the tune, you know? They had a relationship? Good God. Well, I look forward to seeing that. This has been episode 65 of G.I. Joburg. I've got nothing else to add to that. So, from Stephen and Rob and Paul making kissy faces with Mainframe and Serena, Special Missions Cujo, goodbye. And good night. And good day. And enjoy the cartoon, people, because we're giving you a lot of reasons. And join us next time for another exciting episode of G.I. Joburg. Everybody, action! You'll be joining us soon A band of vipers Playing our tune With an iron fist And a reptile hiss We shall rule What is that We're idiot doing? Us. We've heard it before We're not gonna play the game No more They are animals Too late to resist Cause Cobra is strong Oh my goodness, we're going way over budget! We're Barbarians! Yeah.